Well, good morning, everyone. It's good afternoon for me. Um, this is going to be recorded for everybody for you this morning. Uh, I am symptom-free, COVID-free, double vaccinated, booster shot, and all of that. But not everyone in my household is COVID-free and symptom-free. And so that means that uh, prudence is the better part of valor, and I need to isolate uh, along with my symptomed son. So that is why you're getting video today, both at home and here at the church. Um, but I'm recording this on Saturday afternoon, and so if you somehow contract COVID from me 22 hours in the future, that will be a new variant that scientists are very interested in. But I think you're safe. Um, we're continuing, actually we're concluding our series on Jonah this morning in Jonah chapter 4. And uh, to start off today, I just want to prepare you ahead of time for a rebuke. One of the many things that we've been learning over the past few months as we consider what it means to be followers of God, what it means to be disciples of Jesus, especially imperfect disciples who often resemble Jonah more than Jesus, is that God has permission to speak into every part of our life. There is no part of us that is off limits to Jesus by his word, by his Holy Spirit, by the means of God's grace through the church, God is allowed to correct, to discipline, to shape, to mold, to transform his disciples. That means me, that means you. And if you call yourself a Christian, a big part of what that means is that you welcome or you invite, you participate in the transforming influence of God in your life. God has authority to speak into every part of your life. And that means when our lives and our thoughts and our preferences and our desires and our emotions and our ideologies and our actions do not line up with God's, then we can be corrected. And the biblical word for that correction is often rebuke. It's a verbal lesson or correction, and God takes his children aside and basically says, I need a word with you, my child. You won't like what I am going to say, but you need to listen to what I have to say carefully. We see the rebuke of God most famously in the book of Job. In both chapters 38 and 40, God tells Job to gird up his loins, or some translations say, dress for action like a man, I'm about to speak to you. And so Jonah chapter 4 is a rebuke. Jonah needs to get his man pants on. Or if he was a woman, he needs to get his woman pants on. It works for either gender. So fair warning here as we step into Jonah chapter 4, we are going to get a rebuke. And we are a society right now in history that is especially sensitive to being told that we are wrong. And I just want you to know ahead of time that God is going to tell us that you're wrong. Your priorities are wrong. You have imperfect priorities. And there may be a rebuke in here for all of us. God may be telling me that I'm wrong in some place. God may be speaking through his word to tell you that you are wrong someplace. But that's a good thing. In fact, it is an awesome thing that God rebukes us. Imagine that the God of the universe wants to mentor you, wants to coach you, wants to correct you. I mean, that's just incredible. The God of the universe wants to shape your life. A rebuke from God is not a good thing. Those whom God loves, he disciplines. 
So God wants us, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so don't resist the opportunity when God rebukes you, when God calls us to be transformed, when God takes us aside and puts his arm around our shoulders in some way and says, I have something I need you to hear, and you need to hear it clearly. So Jonah chapter 4 is certainly an unexpected chapter. The whole amazing adventure we've been on doesn't seem like it should end the way it does. We think at the end of Jonah chapter 4, where is the victory, the happy ending for Jonah, the satisfying conclusion? Why does it just end with a scolding from God and apparently no restoration for Jonah? Well, beyond this being a historical book, in other words, it's a faithful account of a real prophet's life and a real person's attitude about evangeling his real enemies in the real Middle East, Jonah chapter 4 is described exactly the way that it is because Jonah is a didactic book. That is, it's a book that's meant to teach us. And so it's deliberately trying to teach us a lesson in Jonah chapter 4. So before I read the whole chapter, once again, let's just imagine what might cause the description of events in Jonah chapter 4 to be written the way they are. You'll remember that, broadly speaking, Jonah's chapter 1 and 2 are about God and Jonah and how God was at work in Jonah's life. And Jonah chapter 3 and 4 are teaching us about God and his mission and work in the world. And so with that in mind, imagine for a moment that God's mission of salvation will operate based on his perfect justice and mercy rather than on our ideology. That God may want to show us that our sense of justice, bent as it is by sin, is not the same sense of justice that he has. Imagine also that God may be more concerned with his mission and work of redeeming the lost than he is concerned for your particular priorities or comforts. And then imagine rather that rather than God abandoning poor disciples and poor servants who care more about themselves than others and whose sense of justice is warped by sin, imagine instead of abandoning them and leaving them behind and going on with the work by himself, God instead uses his mission and work in the world. He uses his justice and mercy to rebuke, to exhort, to discipline, to sanctify those poor servants at the exact same time as he uses them to accomplish his mission and salvation in the world. In other words, God isn't wasting anything. Imagine a God who is accomplishing both of these things at exactly the same time. And if you can imagine that God could be like that, and that we poor servants might be like Jonah, then when we read Jonah chapter 4, we get a chapter that is exactly like we would expect. That God is both saving Nineveh through Jonah and also rebuking and correcting Jonah for his own personal sanctification at the same time as he's accomplishing his mission of salvation with Nineveh. So let's just pray before we read chapter 4 and unpack the lessons that God has for us and our imperfect priorities. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us, that we get to dive into it as deeply as we get to dive into it every single week, and I hope every single day of our lives. And so, Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. 
So starting at the last verse of chapter 3, so that we pick up the context, uh, we'll move into chapter 4. Nineveh has repented. Nineveh has cried out to God. Nineveh, this wicked city, has asked to be saved. And verse 10 of chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then Jonah 4 But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, what do we learn from this chapter? The first thing that we want to consider that frames the entire context of the lessons that God is teaching is God's interest in making his mercy known. And we don't need to belabor this too much as we covered it in much more detail last week. But we should understand that this forms the context of Jonah's anger and the context of God's rebuke. Everything in a follower's life, everything in a disciple's life, everything in a believer's life gets set in the context of God's nature and his purpose and his intention and his will to make himself and his nature known. The book of Jonah is all about this fact, that God has a great interest in the outworking of his mercy in salvation extended to the world. This is top of God's mind, if there's such a thing as the top of God's mind. His love and his righteousness will govern the world. His mercy and justice will both be known by who and how he chooses to pardon sinners. This is of utmost importance to God, this mission of his, this work of his in the world. But what we discover is that God's mission is of only incidental interest to Jonah. In verse 2, Jonah admits that God's nature is contrary to his own personal desires. He quotes in part in verse 2, which is what is sometimes known as the mercy formula of God, which is found in its full form in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 reads this way. 
The Lord God passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Jonah actually quotes the first half of this, which is interesting because it speaks to his notion of justice, which we can't get into this morning. There's a lot we could unpack there. But Jonah essentially quotes the first half of the mercy formula. And he says, this is essentially the problem, God. This is why I'm so angry. This is why I'm so frustrated I want to die. Your ideology and my ideology do not line up. I want my enemies to be destroyed, and you are going to forgive them. I want this hostile government to fall, and you send me into this culture to show it mercy. I want these people to be destroyed, and you want me to help save them. And so Jonah's problem with God was that he knew God's love and mercy was bound to prevail. That is God's mission in the world. And God has, as we said at the outset, his interest in proclaiming and making his mercy known at the utmost of his mind. It is his top priority, a mission of redemption, of rescue, of mercy and salvation. But it's not Jonah's priority. And so the question for us in chapter 4, in that context, is what lesson is God teaching us about ourselves in relation to his mission and in his mercy, and that Jonah has restated here for us by repeating the mercy formula? There's a lesson in this context. So what is that? The first thing is, is the priority of God's mission over our personal ideology. He says, now, Lord, please take my life from me, in verse 3, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? See, God's rebuke of Jonah's disfavor with God's plan of mercy is very pointed and very simple. He just says, do you do well to be angry? Like, really, Jonah, what are you angry about? Is there any basis for it? Do you have a valid reason for the way you feel, the stance you're holding as my prophet, as my disciple, should you feel the way you feel? You admit just now to knowing my nature and my character. You just recited it, Jonah, and yet you are angry that I choose to save. Well, we do this too. We have our own ideas of what is right and wrong. We make up our own minds about the way things should be, the right way to feel about justice or injustice with regard to the world. We can't be too hard on Jonah because if we're honest, we run up against this in our own lives as much as Jonah does. Last week, Mike Fisher was telling us about the horror and evil of human trafficking that's still taking place right here in Canada, in Ontario, maybe taking place at a local motel here in town. And if God would show mercy to those enslaved women and children who are trafficked by these slavers, we would be in full agreement with God. But Jonah's problem and our problem is that God will choose to save some of the traffickers. God will extend his mercy even to slavers who repent. And we begin to hesitate. We think, no, that goes too far, God. We have a sense of mercy and justice based on our righteousness and our goodness. And our sense of mercy and justice cannot reach as far as God's does. We understand a ministry to reach the enslaved, but a ministry that reaches the slavers? Jonah says, wait a minute, this doesn't sit right. And God has the right to ask Jonah, to ask us, 
are you right to feel that way? Do you think that my mercy ministry to you was somehow earned or that you deserved it more so than someone else? Are you right to act in anger because someone else who you think doesn't deserve it receives my mercy? Are you sure your response towards those who you choose to count as your enemies holds itself up to my nature and my mercy? Does it even hold itself up to the mirror of Scripture? God speaks here to Jonah directly, perhaps audibly, but perhaps even more likely just by the impression of his spirit. Jonah knows all about the accountability of God's people to God. It's literally his job as a prophet to hold the people of God accountable. (laughs) Jonah is well aware that God rebukes his people. Jonah is the actual vehicle of rebuke to the people of Israel. But we have sort of a who rebukes the rebuker scenario here. If he's the one who's supposed to be faithfully exhorting others to follow God, but it's Jonah himself that needs exhorting, now it falls to God to exhort the exhorter to rebuke the rebuker. And God will do that in our lives. God will use many forms of grace to affect change in your life. God most often speaks to us through his word or also through his spirit convicting us and sometimes through prophets. That is the word of God coming through your Christian friends who are speaking prophetically into your life. And they challenge your ideology. And the challenge is simple enough. It's as simple as Jonah's. Do you do well to hold to the position that you hold? Is your attitude correct in this towards the world? God put us in a church family so that you would hear some rebuke and some exhortation. You hear it right here on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're feeling and hearing some rebuke right now. But he's also given an order of authority to the people in your life. You have pastors. You have elders. You have spiritual mothers and fathers. You have spiritual brothers and sisters. And through his word, through his spirit, through the church, through authority, through relationship, God has put you in a place where he can ask you in any part of your life, do you do well to be blank? Just fill in the blank. Do you be, do well to be prideful, to be arrogant, to be confident, to be certain, to be disdaining, to be condescending, to be rebellious, to be whatever? Do you do well to hold the stance that you hold? He's asking this of Jonah. Do you do well, Jonah, to be angry? Are, are you... Do you understand what's going on here? Can you hold your attitude up to the light of Scripture and feel like it is valid? Fellow Jonas, the question is simple. Do your ideologies align with God's character and mission? Do you do well to feel the emotions you are feeling? Do you do well to act the way you act? Do you do well to post what you post on Facebook? Do you do well? God challenges our ideologies. If your response, if your emotions, your ideology, your words, your stance towards the world, even towards people who are hostile towards you or seem evil to you, if if your posture does not line up with Scripture the way Jonah's doesn't, then it doesn't line up with God, and we do not do well to hang on to it. Jonah should have let all his anger evaporate in that hot sun. When God asked him the question, do you do well, Jonah should have reconsidered and rethought about what stance he had taken and maybe shifted his stance a little bit towards God's. He should have been filled with compassion for Nineveh. He was literally acting opposite to what pleased God. 
But still, Jonah doesn't heed God's question in his life. God asked him a simple rhetorical question. Jonah, are you really sure that your position on this is correct? But Jonah does not re-examine his dug-down deep beliefs about Nineveh. Jonah is determined to hold the position that he holds and be contrarian no matter what God speaks into his life. And so God, being a good teacher, provides an object lesson. And maybe you will see a little more clearly, Jonah, if I turn the tables on you and maybe make this a little more personal and show you what it means to feel the way you feel. And this brings us to the second priority. Not only is there the priority of God's mission over our ideology, but, and I'm sorry, catch up there, (laughs) we have the priority of God's mission over our comfort. In verse 6 and following, God appoints a plant to shade Jonah, and God appoints a worm to destroy the plant, and God appoints an east wind to afflict Jonah. God has a little bit of insight into Jonah's life, you might say. In fact, of course, God knows Jonah better than Jonah knows himself. And it's obvious to God that Jonah places a very high priority on his own protection, on his own safety and his own comfort physically and temporarily in this life. And at the same time, a very low priority on the protection and safety and security of the entire city of Ninevites. Now, God knows this. God knows that this is the heart of Jonah, that he really cares about himself more than he cares about others. And so he unfolds a sort of living parable here in the last half of chapter 4. God arranges by his providence the circumstances of Jonah's life in such a way that God can kind of reveal to Jonah the attachment that he has to his own personal comfort and the detachment that he has to the greater mission of God to save the lost. See, this is what God is sovereign over all the details of our life, all the circumstances of our life, he can arrange them to accomplish his lessons towards us. And so we see it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And Jonah basically says, This is more like it. Jonah's exceedingly glad. This is, this is a good change of events, God. I, I, I was displeased in verse 1 that Nineveh repented, but I am super happy now that I have this shade. My, you know, lousy little shelter, which was supposed to shade me, that I built on my own by my own effort, it was not accomplishing what I needed for my protection. I couldn't protect myself by my own effort, but God, you have grown this plant and given me shade from your sun and from your heat, and I am comforted by that. Now, he's very happy because it saved him from discomfort, it says there in the middle of verse 6, because heaven forbid that Jonah be uncomfortable or lack protection. I mean, really, to expect a disciple of God to be uncomfortable or inconvenienced is really, for Jonah, asking too much. And after teeing Jonah up for this lesson, God appoints a worm to eat away at the plant and the comfort and protection that God has provided. And that was 
provided entirely by his providence in the first place. And that protection disappears. In fact, God goes further and appoints the hot east wind to blow and the sun beating down and the east wind is blowing. It's sucking the life out of everything. And Jonah feels in the natural world a small taste of what it is to be under the angry hand of God, what it might feel like to be under the wrath of God. Remember, it's an object lesson. God is making a point here to Jonah. It's not just capricious. It's not just a whim. It's a plan. And of course, Jonah is devastated. This is tragedy. God has removed his protection. He's no longer comfortable. Everything that matters seems to be taken away from him. He might as well be dead. It's like the people of Israel in the desert. What, what, what do you do, God, bringing us out into the Egypt in order to die? Now, God asked Jonah the same question about the plant and the shade as he asked him about the whole city of Nineveh. In verse 4, God asked Jonah if he was right to be angry about Nineveh. And now in verse 9, God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And Jonah, interestingly here, totally doubles down against God, which is a bold move anytime you're betting against God. He says, oh yes, I am right to be angry. I'm angry enough to die about this plant. And so God finishes explaining the lesson. He says, Jonah, you did nothing to receive the comfort and protection of the plant. I provided it for you. The protection you received from my fierce blazing sun came from me by no effort of your own. My protection came to you overnight, and then I took my protection away just as quickly, and you fell into despair. Jonah, don't you see that you care very passionately when your protection and your comfort is removed? And this is just temporary protection. This is just protection from a physical sun and a physical wind. It's just temporary protection in this life from inconveniences and things that are bothersome here. This has nothing to do with eternity. You see, Jonah, the circumstances of your life come and go in a moment, and yet you are so passionate about these temporary comforts and protections. You despair if they are threatened, and you're angry if you're inconvenienced in any way. And at the same time, you're sitting right beside a city of 120,000 people who don't know right from wrong. The, the people of Nineveh are not just sitting under a hot sun. They are sitting under the threat of my eternal wrath, Jonah. And you don't think that I should care about them more than you care about the shade of a plant? You have great passion for your protection. Should I not have compassion for their protection? You wish to be saved from my temporarily hot sun. Should they not be saved from my eternal wrath? Should they not receive the same protection that you cherish, Jonah? Is their eternity not more important than any temporary inconvenience you might experience? Isn't my mission of salvation to the world more important than your momentary discomfort or dissatisfaction? And the questions, of course, are rhetorical again. We know the answer God would have for them. God's answer to these questions is, I don't see how you are acting in any way that isn't selfish or entitled, Jonah. It seems that you are acting in a way that you just want what you want for yourself. Don't you think this whole city of people there is more important? Don't you think that's the bigger mission, Jonah, than your comfort? 
Am I wrong to pity them and have compassion for them, to be merciful towards them, just because you don't like them? You think that it's an excuse to put yourself first ahead of other people? Jonah, God eventually asks, are you on a mission of self or are you on a mission of salvation? And then God just sort of leaves us hanging there in uncomfortable silence after that rebuke, in the midst of rebuke. The rhetorical questions that God is asking sort of rolling over and over in our mind like the waves of the sea. Because God wants us to ask these questions of ourselves. He wants Jonah to ask this question of himself repeatedly. Jonah, are you really got your priorities right? Or is this just about you? Well, what about us and our imperfect priorities? Like Jonah, we know the nature and mission of God, but will our actions follow what we know? Is showing mercy to the world going to take priority over our personal preferences, over our sense of what is just and unjust? God's mercy takes priority over our justice. God's mission of salvation takes priority over our mission of personal security and personal sovereignty. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament gives us such an amazing picture of priority in the Christian life. There is nothing about the Apostle Paul's life that spoke to selfishness. Nothing in his life that even spoke to what we might today call balance. You never hear the Apostle Paul talking about making sure that he was protecting his work-life balance, you know, his, his family uh, church balance, uh, you know, whatever balance the world puts out there. Paul never talked about protecting his sense of balance in his life. Instead, Paul says to his fellow missionary, young Timothy, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, be on God's mission. Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. What an incredible picture, being poured out like a drink offering. In the Old Testament, uh, during the feast, people would bring uh, sacrifices. They would bring offerings to God, and they would be food offerings, and one of them was an offering of drink, and it would be poured out, and it would just be emptied, that emptying cup, that cup that is being drained in order to serve God. That's the picture that Paul has of his life. There's, there's no balance in this picture. There's only priority. God's work comes first in Paul's life. Everything else falls into proper place behind that traveling on dangerous roads, standing before rioting crowds who would beat him and leave him for dead at various points in prisons in different cities. There's no work-life balance for Paul. There's no guarding his family time from the mission of God. And there's no anger at God for removing the comfort of a shade plant in Paul's life. And then Paul gives this general advice to all believers this way. He says it's in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Just, just you Christian friends of mine, you, you believers in the church in Philippi, let me just give you this general advice. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the priority of a disciple. 
not selfishness, not arrogance, not putting our own sovereignty, our own ideologies, our own desires first, but putting God's mission first, the interest, the eternal spiritual saving interest of others first, always them first. And you take these New Testament exhortations from Paul and you roll them back into Jonah and you think, Jonah, are you counting Nineveh more significant than yourself? Are you looking to your own interests or are you looking to the interests of Nineveh? We can bring these exhortations into our life. Are are we worried about balancing our rights or our comforts or our priorities or our families or our whatever with the mission of God? Or does the mission of God come first above all of those other things? Are we frustrated and angry that God doesn't work things out better for us as Christians in Canada? You know, because we're inconvenienced. Are we sitting in the desert grumbling that our shade of legal protection has been removed? That's not the priority of a disciple. The priority of the disciple is the mission of God. So we can let God ask these questions in every part of our life, in Scripture or in prayer, on a Sunday morning, in a life group, by going to an elder, over a coffee with a fellow brother or sister. We can have these questions asked of our lives because this is what it means to be a disciple. God gets to put his finger in your life and say, this needs to change. This is not aligned with where I am. We can get ourselves so aligned then on the other focusedness of God's mission. It's a mission of salvation to the world that flows outward from his people. If we get the right perspective on the importance between our comfort and God's mission and how those priorities are so different, then we can be on team with God. We can be on point with God. We can be on mission with God. And understand this. Like, Let's be very realistic here. God didn't ask Jonah to go to Nineveh and die. He didn't ask Jonah to literally lay down his life for the people of Nineveh. God asked that of Jesus, and Jesus did it for us. All God asks of Jonah and his disciples is just to talk to some strange people, to perhaps tolerate some strange customs, to live in a country and in a place and in a culture that might be inconvenient to us in many ways. But all of that is fleeting. God asks a very fleeting, temporary, minor inconvenience of us in order to save a great multitude for a future that is eternal. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and there's no getting around the fact that Jonah ends on a rebuke, and you masterfully just leave that rebuke hanging in silence. And in some way, we don't get satisfactory conclusion to Jonah, other than we know that Jonah wrote the book. Jonah said, here's the rebuke that God gave me in my life. And you know what? I'm going to let God have the last word. I'm not even going to put another verse on the end of my book. I'm just going to give you the book. I'm going to give you this example of my life. I'm going to give you the rebuke of God, and I'm going to let his word be the last word. I'm going to let his rebuke stand. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you rebuke us, that those that you love, you discipline. Father, don't have us fret and wrestle and strike back in anger against your rebukes. Rather, let us hear them. Hear your word. 
let your word land on us so that we don't need the object lesson of circumstances in our life in order to learn it. Father God, you are so good to us. Father, let us get on mission. Let us get our priorities right. We're imperfect disciples with imperfect priorities, but you give us your word, you give us your spirit, you give us your church, you give us your people that we might get our priorities aligned with yours. We thank you that you're a God of mercy and that you care so deeply and are so concerned and of utmost importance to you is your great mission of salvation in this world. Make it our mission too. Amen.